now the good fight with Yasha Monk. My name is Rob Henderson. I'm a PhD student in psychology at Cambridge University and a graduate of Yale University. But before I entered higher education, my life was a lot different. I recently wrote an essay that appeared in Persuasion titled Don't End Aptitude Tests. In that piece, I wanted to question a popular opinion that standardized testing has a detrimental effect on the prospects of poor and disadvantaged students. I'm sort of a beneficiary of standardized tests, despite my unusual upbringing. In that piece, I highlighted that it has become somewhat fashionable to believe that these kinds of standardized tests are harmful to kids who grew up like I did. My mother was a drug addict and my father had abandoned us. And I spent my early childhood living in foster homes in Los Angeles and was generally a terrible student. And I just had a very negative attitude about rules and about teachers. In high school, I graduated near the bottom of my high school class with a 2.2 GPA. So I decided to join the military, which requires potential recruits to take the armed services vocational aptitude battery, or what's called the ASVAB, which is a standardized test somewhat similar to the SAT. After I took this test, my military recruiter showed me how to convert my results into an SAT score. I was surprised to discover that my score was the same as my friend who had always gotten straight A's and who was heading for college. So the results of that test was the first inkling that maybe I had the potential to be a good student and I in the future could have maybe sought a path to college. My academic prospects were not as dire as I thought. So for example, in May of 2020, the University of California system, including UCLA and Berkeley, permanently eliminated the SAT and ACT requirements for college admissions. Later in December, the New York Times editorial board highlighted inequality when recommending that New York City's elite high schools should eliminate their admissions exams. And so in that piece, I drawn some research that contradicts these views. So for instance, gifted programs for children typically rely on subjective recommendations from teachers and from parents for which kids receive that gifted label and can take those gifted courses. But a 2016 study found that when schools administered an IQ test to all of their students, the number of poor and minority students identified as gifted increased. So this test revealed these sort of gifted qualities in these students that adults had previously overlooked. In a similar vein, a British study found that when teachers evaluated two equally capable students as measured by a standardized test, the teachers rated the poorer student as less capable and the richer student as more capable. So again, these Students scored exactly the same, but the teachers were biased by perceptions of wealth. And so I think these studies, along with my own personal experience, indicate that there's something missing in these discussions about standardized tests. There are kids who grew up the way I did in chaos, in disorderly environments that get bad grades, that mask their underlying potential. And this is a kind of potential that a standardized test could reveal. 
Now, most kids uh, who grew up the way I did, they don't take the SAT or the ASVAB, the military test, or any other kind of standardized test. I make the argument more kids should. And I think it would help if these tests were free and if they were compulsory. I don't believe it's a barrier. I think it's more of a gateway. Rob Henderson's piece called Don't End Aptitude Tests was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. Well, today, it's a real pleasure to have Tyler Cohen on the podcast. Tyler is a professor of economics at George Mason University. He leads the blog with Alex Tabarrok called Marginal Revolution, which is really excellent. And he's also a columnist at Bloomberg. Tyler is a really wide-ranging thinker, and our conversation reflected that. We talked about everything from the nature and the definition of populism to uh, the failings of so many political institutions during the COVID-19 pandemic, to why Tyler believes that the core thesis of Thomas Piketty has recently been disproven and what that means about what we should think about the economy, to most importantly, his advice on how to choose an excellent restaurant. There's a lot in this conversation. I learned a lot from it. I'm sure you will too. Tyler Cohen, welcome to the podcast. Yasha, thank you for having me on. So the thing that I've really been obsessed with for the last months, and that I'm sure you're going to have a different perspective on, is what the pandemic has told us about the state of our political institutions and the state of our economic institutions. So why don't we start at that level of generality? I mean, what have you changed your mind about what's working, what's not working at the sort of broadest levels in our society in light of the experience we've had over the last, at this point, you know, 14 or so months? Well, for now, let's focus on the United States. Our early response, especially in that first two months, was essentially non-existent, and that was a disastrous set of decisions. It was from the Trump administration, but to be entirely fair, Democratic governors did the same thing. There were Democratic Party rallies up until some date in March, where everyone showed up and they, you know, all screamed out loud. So, it is ultimately a failing of American society. Voters did not rebel against that decision at the time. So one lesson is that the failures of our public sector are in some ways mirroring the failures of our private sector. And I don't think either side quite wants to admit that because it runs counter to both of the major narratives, kind of the anti-market narrative, then there's the anti-government narrative. Or for instance, if you take the libertarian critique of the FDA, which I very much agree with, I think one has to notice also, look, voters have not rebelled against various FDA decisions, or the public health experts who are not working for the FDA often will endorse what the FDA is saying, and they are private sector individuals. So again, the sense the ultimate problem is cultural, and uh, the failings of our government are reflecting broader failings with the country. And I think you'll find that in many other countries as well. So let's start with the failings of these state institutions. I mean, I increasingly worry that this should really change our Bayesian model of how we're going to be able to deal with other crises, because our complete inability of political institutions in the United States, but also at the international level, also at the European Union level, also at the national European level, it has just been astonishing to me. And it seems to me like 
we at this point have a state machinery, which is pretty good at business as usual with obvious problems and so on that you can point out, but it's functional at business as usual. But the institutions don't seem capable of understanding when a situation has changed, when perhaps, for example, a once in a century pandemic might justify things like human challenge trials. There's no way of even starting to think seriously about making those kinds of adjustments. And that failure seems to be reflected, as you're saying, at the level of what people can actually imagine, what people can actually demand. So yeah, what do we make of that? Is that something we should just get used to? And has that just told us the limitations of our institutions that will persist indefinitely? Or do you think there is some way of hoping to change that? I think I'm less shocked than you have been. Maybe I'm more of a cynic about government in the first place. But part of the picture, of course, again, especially for the U.S., is that on the vaccines front, we put in one of the best performances in all of human history in terms of the science and eventually, after a bad start, the mobilization. So we do need this bigger picture where, again, sticking with America, our government was incredibly good at one thing, and it needed to be something that the U.S. culturally is good at, which is like a kind of mass mobilization of getting stuff out to people, good at science, good at taking in immigrants and mobilizing their talents. So it's one of the greater events of human history, in my opinion. So we somehow need this bigger meta picture that takes all that into account. In some ways, it reminds me of World War II, where the United States, toward the end, is doing remarkably well. But obviously, Pearl Harbor was a debacle, right? It's maybe a common pattern in American history that we close well and start off very poorly. And also, the vaccines, it was something where you can hand out goodies to voters. And government, often for the worse, is good at that. In this case, obviously, it was for the better. So I agree mostly with what you said. I wonder for whether there's a, a different way of trying to find a distinction between what has worked and what has not worked. So a year ago, and I've written about this and I've talked about this before on this podcast, the consensus really was there's no libertarian in a pandemic. This is going to prove the irrationality of the economic system. It shows that just-in-time production processes really don't work and open us up to far too many dangers. And the state will ride to the rescue. It's the state that's going to make sure that things keep running, that people can pay their rent and so on and so forth, and that we contain the pandemic. Now, I think on one level, the state has succeeded, which is the welfare state. I do think that it is thanks to the generosity of direct payments from the state that people have been able to pay their rent and have food on the table, and that actually poverty has gone down in 2020, amazingly. But in every other respect, the state has just been an astonishing failure. And it's the private economy that actually has made sure that there still were products in the supermarkets after a couple of weeks of shortages of toilet paper. There really weren't any production shortages in important ways. Suddenly, after a few months, masks were plentiful. Even for the beginning, they were sparse. We produced the necessary amount of hand sanitizer. For now, it turns out that hand sanitizer probably wasn't that important all along. And we're ending up with, as you're saying, this incredible, inspiring invention and production and distribution of vaccines. So is this a sign of a resilience of welfare state capitalism and a sign of the weakness of democracy? I don't know that I would put it that way. I think pragmatic libertarianism has come out of the pandemic looking much better. And if you think of the vaccine and fiscal policy as the two major successes, again, it gets to this theme that our governments are very good at handing things out to people, especially in the United States. My real worries 
are for the European Union, for Latin America, and for the countries that don't have a coherent plan to reopen, including many countries that have performed admirably, but they've become so risk-averse, it's not clear how they get out of the corners they've painted themselves into. So I think the one region in the whole world that is coming out of this with the highest self-confidence is the American Southeast, which has low unemployment already for the most part, did lose more lives than it needed to. That was a mistake. But at the end of the day, they feel they have done pretty well and their economies are recovering and they're seeing a net inflow of people. So, you know, during the pandemic, people were moving into Florida, not away from it. And public health experts commentators in general are not taking that lesson seriously enough. So what do you think a more rational set of policies would have been? And obviously it's easier to do this with the benefit of hindsight, for there's still a lot of pandemic fog. It's still very hard to really understand why cases explode in some places at some times. I think I'm now at the stage of thinking we should have shut down things much more radically, much earlier on, put a real test trace and isolate system in place. I mean, I was arguing that at the time. And then actually, once we realized that we're not going to contain the virus, once we realized that somehow we're not collectively capable or not even trying to really put that regime into place, then perhaps we should have actually reopened a little bit more quickly. And certainly now I think that a large percentage of these of the US population is vaccinated. It feels to me like we're actually too reluctant to return to normal life, especially people who are vaccinated are too reluctant to return to normal life. What would a rational set of responses have looked like for the last year? Well, we should have approved rapid testing immediately and put it into widespread use, if only using the private sector, but government also. You know, I would say all hands on deck. I'm not sure we should have locked down sooner than we did. There's lockdown fatigue, whether you agree with that fatigue or not. And if you lock everything down for four weeks and nothing is happening, people get frustrated with it. And then if you needed to lock down later, when there are more cases, the public won't support it. So I think we made a mistake by locking everything down at once. So you have parts of the country, such as West Virginia, which early on had very, very few cases. I even went there. Everyone was basically saying, why are they locking us down? This is destroying business. There's no gain here. And then when they actually had problems, they were relatively unwilling to lock down. So that would be another thing we didn't get right. But just in general, again, other than vaccines and fiscal policy, it's hard to think of areas where we did very well. The Fed did very well. That was a kind of fiscal policy, in fact. The NBA did spectacularly well, as did Amazon and Zoom. Those are businesses. You were talking about the cultural failure, but actually... To an astonishing extent, voters don't seem to have rebelled even against governments that have done quite poorly. They haven't demanded redress of some of the institutional failures we've seen. But again, for the European Union, where I have not been, to be fair, but I think we need to ask serious questions about a long-run dent in loyalties toward the European Union. I would say I don't know. I suspect no one knows. But that seems to me a major issue in a way that it is not in U.S. politics. It's not clear to me that's the case. I mean, following the public debate in Europe, I have been astonished by how little anger there is at political institutions in general and how little anger there is at the European Union in particular. I mean, for context here, the European Union decided to take the lead on vaccine acquisition and then distribution to the member states. They negotiated for months over really small details like a couple of euros saved per shot and sort of some questions of detail of legal responsibility. 
And so by the time that they concluded those contracts, most vaccine makers had made firm commitments to other countries. And so this is a big part of the reason why the European Union got the vaccine so late. And then the member states have been very bad at distributing it as well. But I would expect long-term damage to the reputation of the European Union from that. I'm not sure that I have seen any actual evidence of that happening so far. And perhaps this is as many things in politics, you know, the cartoon character that runs over the cliff and remains suspended in the air for a good little while. And then eventually he looks down and boom, he falls. And perhaps we're in this moment of being suspended in midair because people are too worried about the lockdowns and the lives to sort of be angry. But I'm not sure about that. But don't you feel that the next time there's a crisis, pandemic or otherwise, individual governments will simply go their own way. They'll do what Serbia did with the vaccines, cut their own deals. And the EU is not going to disappear or collapse, but it won't be looked to to solve major problems. And it will be each country for itself. Isn't that now a likely alternative? If people are rational, it might be. No, I think actually European politicians are trying to emphasize the positive. And so they're saying, hey, you know, at least we didn't have vaccine nationalism within the EU. At least we were able to have solidarity about how we distribute the vaccines. This has been the one success of this pandemic. So it shows that we should hold together at the European level. I think there's as many politicians that are taking that lesson as the one that I agree with you would be the more rational one to take. And can't you imagine that in less than two years, we will have a Western Europe without real leaders? So Merkel, of course, is stepping down. There's not an obvious successor. Vote distribution, it's not clear where it's headed in Germany, but probably not to fully mainstream parties. And then in France, again, I'm not going to predict that Le Pen wins. I would probably bet against that. But the forces of the center seem badly weakened and not having a positive agenda. And the original plan of Macron to sell French people on a stronger EU than ever before now sounds absurd. And that, in essence, there'll be an intellectual and ideological vacuum in most of the European Union. That's, to me, the default scenario. Again, it's not the end of the world. But to me, it's much more worrying than anything going on in the United States. That's interesting. Well, let's talk about this. And I want to talk to you more broadly about your view on populism, which I'm not quite sure where you stand on, actually. Well, in Germany, we have an election coming up in the fall. And what's astonishing is that actually at this point, the anti-establishment parties are down in the polls. So you have the left party as a party that's very critical of NATO and so on, really stagnating at about seven or so percent, which is a low level for them. And then you have the far-right AFD, which has been very worrying to me, down to 10 or 11 percent in the opinion polls. That's very high in my view, 10 or 11 percent, but go on. It is very high and I'm worried about it. But at the last election, they were on 13, 14. And given the circumstances, I wouldn't have surprised if that increased. So you get overall anything you can call an anti-establishment party being below 20%. The big winner at the moment is the Green Party. But the Green Party in Germany, of course, is completely unlike anything like the United States Green Party. It's a pretty economically moderate party. Culturally, it is somewhat progressive, but not really even in the American woke mold. And on foreign policy, it is at this point, I think, the most strongly transatlanticist and the most strongly pro-human rights party in Germany. So it's not exactly clear what kind of coalition you will get. You are right that Angela Merkel will not have a strong successor. But then again, Angela Merkel has actually set out virtually every crisis over the last 10 or 15 years. She's been a good symbol and she's been somebody who I personally respect and admire, but she has not acted in any of the big crises facing Germany, whether it's the euro crisis, the 
refugee crisis, whether it's COVID, whether it's the rise of authoritarian populists in Poland or Hungary. She has set those crises out, I think, to the detriment of Europe. France is very worrying when you're looking at the second round presidential polls at the moment, they give about 54% to Macron, 46% to Marine Le Pen. And certainly if Le Pen won, that would be a disaster. But if we end up with Laschet or Söder as the next chancellors of Germany, and if we end up with Macron narrowly getting reelected, it feels to me like that would just be more of the same in Europe. It would be kind of a continuation of the status quo. I think you have a resurgent Russia in military terms. I think you have a China that is up to no good. A Turkey that in military terms has been somewhat successful and is aggressive, and the status quo isn't good enough. So, I mean, you look at Merkel, I think it was this morning, said the UK given passports to Hong Kongers will not be recognized as such. They're just travel documents. So my worry is exactly that Europe is stuck in the status quo. And even for Germany, if you imagine a coalition between the Greens and CDU, I don't find that so splendid. It's like a coalition of sort of the center, and the radical parties then tend to proliferate and get more influence. And we need Germany to step up, fix its problems with infrastructure, lower tier education, make up its mind on foreign policy, truly rejoin the Atlantic Alliance, which it's turned its back on. And I see none of those things happening after the next election. So my worry is your default case of the status quo. And that's the best case scenario. Yes, on that, I think we're agreed. I guess let me ask you about your view of populism and the rise in these figures we've seen. I think we agree on finding those parties and those candidates to be very concerning, and that's been implicit in what you've said about European politics a moment ago. I guess perhaps you have been more critical of the status quo in such a way that might make you think that a political shakeup is to some extent an opportunity. I guess I'm wondering how you see, to what extent you think of these movements as a deep existential threat to our institutions. And that might go to what you said about the United States as well, where you said that actually, you know, you're not too concerned about America at this point. Are you not worried about Donald Trump running again in 2024, about some Trump-like figure running in 2024 and what that might do to the country? There's always plenty of things you can worry about. I'm certainly not rooting for Trump to run again or to win again. But at the end of the day, if you look at what I would call market price signals, they seem fairly bullish on the United States. Personally, I root against what people call populist parties. I'm uncomfortable with that term. I don't know what it means. It's like when people use the term popular music, they mean something like, well, not classical music, not jazz, but a lot of popular music isn't popular. A lot of populist parties aren't necessarily popular. So maybe it's contrasted with some understanding of elites. But I think the changing power and influence of elites has evolved very generally, not just like within the populist parties, also within the current Democratic Party. So when people say populism, I get nervous because I don't always know what they mean by that. Well, let me give you my brief definition, which might be a good refresher for listeners to this podcast as well. First of all, I just don't think the word has anything to do with the word popular. I mean, they both obviously have a Latin root from populus of the people. But I don't think that to say that somebody's populist necessarily means they're popular. And there can be populist parties that thankfully only have three or four percent of the vote. And that shouldn't stop us from calling them populist. I agree with you that anti-elitism is one of the necessary elements of populism. That's true in 
every populist party. But it's true in a lot of non-populist parties as well. If you go to the election campaign of Ronald Reagan in the 80s or Barack Obama in the 2000s, they had strongly anti-elite elements in the rhetoric that happens in virtually every democratic movement. What I think is specific about populist parties is an anti-pluralism. And that helps to explain what the word has to do with the term people, which is they say, I and I alone truly represent the people. And anybody who disagrees with me is by virtue of that fact illegitimate. I've mentioned this before, but Evo Morales' Twitter handle is the most concise definition of populism I know of. It's Evo es Pueblo. Evo is the people. And that, of course, implies that anybody who disagrees with you is by virtue of that fact illegitimate, doesn't have to be recognized if a court overrules an executive order of yours, that's not legitimate. And that to me gets at the core of what's worrying about politicians who are otherwise ideologically quite dissimilar from Trump to Morales to Erdogan and so on. But I, I'm still worried about the definition because as you present it, it seems to me a significant percentage of the intellectual Democrats I know regard the current Republican Party as illegitimate. You might even agree. It's, I'm not trying to argue that point. But it would seem then that they are populists. And that's, to me, too broad a definition. And if I look at what the Democrats are doing, they're copying Trump's policies and relabeling them with different cultural capital. Well, let me make an important distinction. I think this is a great thing to discuss. So I think there's a huge difference between saying there's a particular political movement that is illegitimate and saying there are no political movements other than ours that are legitimate. Now, I get nervous when that happens. I think Politicians, for obvious reasons, are too quick to do that. But I do think there's a difference, for example, in a context like Germany, between saying the NPD, which is a post-Nazi party that flirts with national socialism in all kinds of ways, is illegitimate. And we're going to find ways of isolating that from the political system. But there's a whole range of different political parties with very distinctly different political programs and so on that are legitimate. I think there's a difference between that position and the position that I am the representative of the people and anybody who disagrees with me is illegitimate, no matter from what different kind of ideological profile they come and so on. So I think that's an important distinction. At the same time, you know, I share some of your concern that what often happens when populist parties rise is that they start to say, hey, I alone represent the people and they do undermine democratic institutions. And then it's tempting to say in response, hey, anybody who's not on our side is illegitimate and that you overshoot the target, that you suddenly start to say, hey, if you don't want to get rid of a filibuster, you're a racist and you're illegitimate and we just shouldn't have to deal with you. And frankly, I worry about elements of that in the current discourse. So I don't think that's an objection to the term of populism. I think that's a concern about the way that political discourse is evolving at this moment in the United States. In a funny way, I see it as a bigger issue than you do. So I agree with Martin Gurry that because of the internet, there's been a collapse of faith in many layers of authority. Not all, but really quite a few. And then I see people carve out populism as a smaller thing for us to worry about. And I think that causes them to lose sight of the bigger problem. And they end up behind the curve rather than ahead of it. So again, I'm suspicious about worries about populism. Not that I disagree or favor the populists, but I think it's trying to circumscribe the problem in a way that's very likely to fail. So how would you put the problem in broader terms? We have the internet, plus we have a series of correlations of poor performance on concrete issues. The pandemic, Iraq war, financial crisis, might even be an accident, I'm not sure, but those are serially correlated. So a bunch of big mistakes, and the internet, you see that authorities are in fact often full of it. 
So there's a general decline of faith, not in Amazon.com, but in religious authorities, in political authorities, in public health experts. You can go on down the list. And then that takes many particular manifestations. One of them is populism, which, as you describe it, I don't like. But I don't think the populists are the enemy. I view them as one symptom of a broader transformation. And where the world needs to head is to establish new means of producing credibility and good reputation that are robust to current technologies. We don't so much have that now. I think eventually we will do that, but after a very rocky period that is only getting underway. And what we're now calling populism actually could end up being among the least of our problems, I'm sorry to say. By the way, there's a past episode of this podcast with Martin Guri that I recommend everybody to listen to, as I recommend reading his really fascinating book, The Revolt of the Public. What does that look like? You know, I'm still in my 30s, and I'm struck by the extent that even over my lifetime, there's these intellectual fashions that always come from the basic tendency to project current trends out in a linear fashion. So if the world today is 50% more X than 10 years ago, people just tend to assume that it's going to be 50% more X 10 years from now. And that often seems like it would be a completely radical transformation. But of course, often there's also a return to the mean. And I wonder whether we're in a moment in which that dissolution of respect for authority and the sense of cultural chaos that comes from that, the sense of political polarization that comes from that, the mutual dislike and the mutual hatred, is going to reach a point where more and more people just want to switch off. And I think the most optimistic interpretation of Joe Biden's victory, for I'm not sure that most people in the Democratic Party, and certainly not most people in the media sphere are on board with it, but the most optimistic interpretation of Joe Biden as a candidate was to say, hey, I'm going to give you that return to the mean. I'm going to allow you to not think about the president on a Monday night when you want to watch football. You know, I'm going to allow you to forget about politics for weeks on end. And I wonder whether that's perhaps a leading signal of similar developments in other areas, whether after a very, very political 2010s, we might get a somewhat apolitical 2020s when people say, look, you know what, leave us alone with all of this stuff. We just want to lead our life. And whether people might even find new forms of authority in their private lives. I mean, you know, we go through periods of secularization. And we also go through periods, certainly in American history, of religious recommitment. And so perhaps uh, it'll change what religion looks like. It'll change the kind of communities they find for themselves. But there may be a rebirth of that. So how unlikely do you think that is? Or what would it look like if we get to something like that? Well, there's at least two issues in there. One is politics and Joe Biden. It seems to me that trend is working because Biden can send people a lot of money for free. And that requires that interest rates stay very low. I have no prediction here, but I simply wouldn't count on interest rates always being that low. And if interest rates go up and we have to make hard choices on the budget, matters will be sharply polarized once again, because current plans, even money we've already spent, is not really sustainable with higher interest rates. Uh, the second question about the nature of authority, I'm not aware of any country today, or any normal country, let me say, where religion has made a significant comeback. You could say, well, in communist China, because it was banned. I understand those exceptions. But so countries on a, a normal Western developmental path, I don't see religion making comebacks. So I know there is the Great Awakening. What about a place like Brazil, for example, which I still tend to think of in the back of my mind as sort of 95% Catholic, 
it is at this point probably 40% evangelical Christian. And highly new age as well. I think they're becoming a strange version of paganism, which in some ways they were to begin with. And if Brazil simply becomes wealthy and not that violent, which I wouldn't bet on, but I think there you'll see general secularization. So Brazil might stay chaotic and have a resurgence of religion in that manner. But like, do you see religion coming back in Denmark, in Southern England? I don't see religion coming back in Denmark or in Southern England, but I'm also struck by the extent to which both different belief systems take the place of that and to which I don't actually think that those societies are less bound by moral authority than they were a few decades ago. So let me explain both of those points. So one of the most striking things in Europe is that one of the most secular countries is France, and one of the countries that most believes in astrology is also France. So I think humans have a need for some form of belief in higher forces somehow guiding their lives, and I think there will always be something to take the place of that for most human beings. Not all human beings, but most human beings. And if you secularize deeply, then astrology suddenly becomes more appealing, right? I think more broadly, what I'm struck by is that, you know, I grew up in a very, very secular Europe, but it was a Europe still bound quite deeply by moral commitments and by moral absolutes. Those did not take a religious form. They did not tell you sort of how many people you could sleep with or who you could sleep with. There's some important areas of personal life in which that binding morality is a lot less restrictive, and I think that's a good thing. But it certainly did not feel as though I grew up in moral chaos, not at all. And there's something quite interesting that a friend of mine has pointed out. We go to the same sort of conference that tries to get liberals and conservatives to talk to each other. It was kind of an anti-Trump coalition. And he said, you know, it's fascinating. Here's all of these people twice a year going for two or three days to very nice environment, you know, free alcohol, open bar. And, you know, nobody gets drunk. Nobody has an affair. Everybody has their two beers and then, you know, goes to bed at 11 or 11.30. And it's mostly liberals. There's a good number of conservatives, but mostly liberals. He said, he's a conservative. If I were here and I told you, you know, you should all live like that and you should not have affairs and, you know, it's bad to be morally licentious and all of those kinds of things. That doesn't give people good life outcomes. You would boo me off the stage. You would tell me, what is this conservative claptrap, you know, don't impose your moral vision on us. But that's how those liberal well-to-do people actually lead their lives. And he added, you know, if you go to APAC, actually everybody is drunk and hitting on each other and it's kind of a horrible scene. I haven't been to APAC, so I know that's true, but it's a funny observation. The point for being, I don't see the dissolution of moral authority, at least in well-to-do Europe and America. I think among people who are not economically successful, among people who struggle financially, among people who um, on the sort of rougher edges of post-industrial capitalism, that may be quite different. And that's an important topic. But at the level of sort of what society actually is like for a lot of people, I don't see that. I would put it this way. As religion is declining, I think there will be a very rapid marketing of internet-based religious substitutes. And we see that already. I mean, you could say crypto was one of them, but there's many, many of them, including like left-wing politics. I'm probably more optimistic about that process than most intellectuals are. But I would just say the people who are worried about how things are now or they're critics of Facebook or whatever, they're not going to be very happy about what that looks like. And I think the tendency of that super rapid and highly decentralized 
competitive process will be to make us, on average, much weirder. More creative, perhaps, but weirder. Not more polarized, just a lot more shouting at each other and believing weird things. So that, to me, is the future. And less faith in authority, because it will be a whole bunch of very different views, and indeed already is. So what do you think people will find moral meaning in, in that kind of world? Is it just sort of 20 different things from crypto to sort of politics as hobbyism, where the kind of deep moral religious commitment they have is their love of a particular political cause to all kinds of weird things? Do you think there'll be no sort of common social standards? You say 20, but I would say 20,000. I mean, I'm really rooting for the birders, right? People who go outside and watch birds. They're like a tremendous group of people. And they're now much better organized, better informed. Like I say, bring on the birders. I don't know in relative terms who wins out. I think there's a common core in the sense that we still have a median voter. Again, it's striking to me, the Biden administration is copying the policies of Trump, including on immigration, on Afghanistan. Each party sends $2 million to voters, etc. So that to me, plus seeing market prices, asset prices are fine. I'm really not that pessimistic but I think it will disturb intellectuals and observers how weird and lacking in trust this all is and how little they will be respected other than having like some little super mini religion clustered around them, which they'll think is great. Hmm, that's fascinating. Let me go back to something we're talking about in the context of the pandemic, which was one of the striking things of the last year is the sort of lack of collective spirit, a lack of a sense of, hey, this is a once in a century crisis let's as a society rise to the occasion. There's an odd complacency where, as you were saying, the government institutions are failing, but people aren't even particularly demanding that the government institutions uh, fix those things. That both makes me nervous about our ability to deal with problems like climate change and so on. But it also seems to speak to the topic of your book, which you published a few years ago, about the sort of complacent class and the way in which Americans and perhaps people across the West have become unadventurous, unable to imagine a different future, both at the individual and the collective level. Tell us a little bit about the thesis of that book and how you feel the pandemic has confirmed or perhaps changed your thinking on this. At least prior to the pandemic. It's a book about pre-pandemic America, to be clear. But there's been a decline in entrepreneurship, decline in innovation, decline in the rate of innovation, to be more clear, decline in people moving across the country, people bring up their children in highly paranoid ways. Just general risk aversion was going up quite strongly. I now think there's a decent chance that rhythm has been broken. We will see. But, but here's the contrary case I would make. So I agree with everything you said, and I've argued and written it myself, as you just noticed. But let's try on the contrary case and see how that sounds. Maybe people today are more complacent about emergencies because at some implicit level, they see there's more division of labor and they think someone will come along and save the day. And during the pandemic, what did we see? In fact, Pfizer, Moderna, BioNTech came along and saved the day, Operation Warp Speed. So in a funny way, the complacency was a bit validated. And uh, I'm not saying we can count on that for every problem. But even with climate change, it seems technologies have progressed more rapidly than we might have thought. 
We're all shocked at how valuable a company Tesla has become. That seems now pretty stable. Electric cars are on their way. Solar power, 10 to 15% cheaper every year. So in a world with all this division of labor, maybe complacency is a bit underrated, just to argue against myself for a moment. So you think actually what people did was they said, in the end, something will come and rescue us. And boom, in the end, the vaccines came to rescue most of us. Well, of course, the death toll from the pandemic has been terrible. And so what would the point of getting outraged and so on have been? I'm not sure I think that. I'm just saying when you've written a book and said an argument so many times, you should try doing some discussions, interviews where you say the opposite thing and see how it sounds or how people react to it. So that's me trying on the contrarian position to my own published view. I'm not sure what I think right now. And again, I think the pandemic may have flipped the complacent dynamic because the number of people who went out in many but not all regions of the U.S. and who just said, I'm going to bear this risk, was much higher than I thought it would be. And that's inducing me to re-examine some of my views, even if I think I was right about the time I was writing about, quite possibly American society right now is more dynamic, possibly. You know, I disagree with you. I think that what you're coding as adventurism, I would code as a determination to continue in your ways, which can be quite brave and which I think I have come to have a certain admiration of, even though it's not how I behaved. So, you know, I spent January and February in Florida, in, in Northern Florida, as they say about Florida, the further north you get, the further south you are. So I was in the south of the United States. And I was holed up with some dear friends, barely left the house and the yard we had rented. But, you know, we would go out for lunch once or twice a week, outdoors, socially distant. And, you know, for the first little bit that we were there, the temperatures were in the 50s, you know, and the teens for the Europeans among you. And we thought it's so funny. All of these people are eating indoors in the middle of the pandemic. And there was a big wave going through Florida and a lot of old people sitting indoors, unmasked, having their meals. This seems silly, but perhaps it's too cold for them. Perhaps these Floridians, they think that, you know, these temperatures are just too cold to eat outside. And then it became a little warmer in February and it was, you know, 68 degrees, 20 degrees Celsius in perfect weather. And we thought, well, now everybody's going to be outside. And they were still indoors. We went, my God. And I think there is something, and this is obviously often the case where secular, liberal, elite people love to travel to other countries and admire things that may at some level seem irrational, but when it's their own compatriots doing those kinds of things, then they look down on them terribly. I think if you thought about going to other parts of the world and seeing people brave a certain uh, kind of infectious disease by saying, you know, we have our style of life and we're just going to keep going with it. I think a lot of people would have some respect and admiration for it. And when it's their own compatriots, they say, oh, they have a death cult and so on. I came to have a certain kind of respect for it. I sort of get the choice that people are making of saying, look, we're just going to lead our lives. And of course, we hope that nothing will happen, but, you know, let's stick with it. But it doesn't strike me as a willingness to innovate or a willingness to change or a willingness to embrace the future. I think it's in some ways more European than American attitude saying, look, we have our style of life, we have our way of life and, you know, come political changes, come viruses, come pandemics, we're going to keep going with it. And perhaps it's not, perhaps complacent was the wrong term all along. You dislike my term populism, so I'm going to challenge your term complacency. But it doesn't strike me as a face change. It strikes me as a continuation of a much more established society and culture that is not very open to change. Well, I think that's a very good point. I might put it this way. 
that perhaps the notions of both risk-taking and complacency are more Hegelian than we would have thought, and they're both reconciliations of opposing tendencies, and they need to be understood as such. If you look cross-sectionally in the United States, where did people take a lot of risk? It's clear what regions it was in. It often seems to be correlated with right-wing politics, support for Trump, frontier mentality. I don't think it was the people who are in general necessarily the most status quo oriented. So in that sense, I don't think it's mere wanting to stick with one's ways. There were people who were supporting radical ideas and politics, ideas I don't like, to be clear. And under this Hegelian perspective, maybe we're moving along some Hegelian curve where we still have this reconciliation of opposites with risk-taking and complacency, but that's morphed. And rather than thinking it as a move to greater risk-taking, we need to see it as a different reconciliation. Maybe that's the better way to think about it. So I would accept your criticism of the term complacency. You're certainly not a complacent thinker, so that's characteristic of you. Let me touch on a last topic that I really want to make sure we think through together. And that's sort of how we should think about the basic goals of the economy. I think especially over the last 10 years, a lot of people have started to think about economic inequality as being really the primary thing we should worry about, in good part because of a sort of popularity of Thomas Piketty's work. And then in the last few years, that has taken on a particularly racial lens. So we should really worry about equity and the sort of different economic standing of various demographic subgroups in the United States and in other countries. Your work has emphasized instead the moral imperative of economic growth and the value of overall GDP as a metric for how we're doing. Why are you not as worried about economic inequality as many other economists are? And why are you more sanguine about GDP as the right kind of goal and metric for how we're doing? Well, I don't think how we measure GDP now is the right metric. But to make just a few points, first, the work of Piketty, I think, has been refuted, that the rise in wealth inequality seems to have come through an increase in the value of land driven in large part by nimbyism, not from some kind of superior return to capital. So in my view, that's just wrong. Say a little bit more about that. So nimbyism means not in my backyardism. And obviously, the huge increase in property values in many Western countries comes from the great difficulty of building new housing and so on. But why does that refute Piketty's theory? Well, land is worth much more in London, in San Francisco. If you take out that increase in the value of land, which of course accrues only to landowners, the increase in wealth inequality basically goes away. And Matt Ronley showed that numerically. And there's never been an effective response. So I say Piketty's wrong. And what's the wider implication of that? So, I mean, part of the idea of Piketty's work, as I take it, was to say that the natural tendency of capitalism is towards greater and greater inequality and to need either these sort of destructive wars and so on, which reduced inequality in the 20th century, or very radical political action in order to stop the rich from getting richer and the poor from stagnating or getting poorer. And what you're saying is, no, actually, what you need to fix is nimbyism and the sort of very artificial increase in the price of land, and that would be enough to make sure that economic gains are more fairly distributed. Is that, is that roughly the argument? I don't want to use the word fairly. I'm not sure what's fair. I'm just saying the observed increase in wealth inequality in these nations goes away when you abstract from land. So capital is not the problem. Let's deregulate building. 
I'm not saying the result of all that is necessarily fair. That's a tougher question. But I would just say what I'm interested in is poverty, not inequality. So if Apple as a company earns much, much more money by selling iPhones around the world, I mean, income inequality is going to go up by a lot. In a globalized system, that's actually inevitable. I think that's a good thing, not a bad thing. So inequality is not the problem. Poverty is the problem. We need to attack poverty. I'm all for better anti-poverty policies. If you frame it as inequality, you will not understand the real issue. And it's not economists doing it as economists. It's economists doing it as what I call a kind of third-rate moral philosophy. So I think poverty reduction is incredibly important. And I've spoken on this podcast before about, you know, I think really the deeply immoral stance of saying, hey, we shouldn't have any more economic growth around the world or the empirical lunacy of thinking that you can somehow get people in the vast parts of the world that still are a lot poorer than the West to a decent moral standard simply by somehow redistributing what we have at the moment. We clearly need a lot of economic growth in those parts of the world in order to make sure that people can lead self-determined lives with good access to education and water and electricity and transport and all those other things. But why in a society like the United States, people will say, do we need that much more economic growth? Why is it that we should care whether our descendants 100 years from now will have roughly the GDP that the United States now has, or whether it might have two or five or 10 times as much, especially since when you look at the average metrics of happiness in the United States over the last 50 or so years, they don't seem to have actually gone up over time. So aren't we in a red race where we keep trying to improve our GDP and it doesn't actually do very much for us? That's the sort of objection. How do you respond to that? If you look at the cross-section, wealthier people are much happier than poorer people in the United States. But look, we still have major social problems. Just think about trying to get all the lead out of drinking water and out of our infrastructure more generally. It's a very expensive venture. A wealthier society can afford it more easily. Let's think of another thing I would love to do to fight poverty. I think the US now should buy an mRNA vaccine for every person in the world and help distribute it. We're not doing that. A wealthier society is in a better position to do that. But Tyler, how much is a shot of the mRNA vaccine? I mean, it's five bucks or something like that to produce. It's, it's very cheap, right? Is the United States not in a place to do that if it chose to do so? Now, we may not choose to do so for all kinds of reasons, but I would argue that the United States could easily afford $25 billion to vaccinate the world if the political will was there. It costs more than $25 billion. That's the estimate for what is called jumpstarting the program, which I fully favor. I would favor spending more than $25 billion. But look, most economic goods are what we call normal goods as economists. That is, you're more likely to do them, buy them, the richer you are. So the richer the United States will be, the better that is for Mexico, the better that is for immigrants, the better that is for solving global problems, the better that is for inventing an mRNA vaccine to combat malaria. So I think it's imperative that we become a much more innovative, wealthier country. A century from now, two centuries from now, that imperative will not go away. Since you've mentioned the mRNA vaccine, let me ask you a penultimate question, which is, do you think that we will wind up saving lives because of a pandemic, which is to say, do you think that actually on net the pandemic will save lives? When you look at the way in which we have now proven the concept of these novel vaccines in a way that might not have happened for years or decades without COVID-19, 
And when you look at, as you mentioned, the quite real possibility that we might now have a vaccine for malaria, which is probably the most deadly infectious disease in the world, and by the way, makes up a significant percentage of the deaths expected from climate change. In one of these bizarre human twists, might it be that this virus that has made the world a terrible place for the last year and cost so many lives will actually on net be a boon to humanity? I don't know how to make that calculation. You could argue various terrible events in the past. Maybe it ended up meaning that the U.S. got the atom bomb first before Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union. I would put it this way. I mean, Latin America could easily lose a decade of progress. India now is seeing a major new wave that could devastate the country and the economy. Africa may not remain so immune that what happened in South Africa possibly could spread to many other parts of Africa and set Africa back by a decade or more. The hit to trade, to migration, countries not opening up right away, those just strike me as very, very high costs above and beyond the lives. So we're remixing the whole future by having had the pandemic. And yeah, can it work out for the better? Yes. But the big hit to expected value up front is just enormous. And it's a great tragedy. And I strongly prefer that it wouldn't have happened. Like if I could press a button to make it have not happened, of course, I would press that button. You're a contrarian thinker. I feel like I just tried to out-contrary you and I lost. I think you make a very plausible case on that. I guess the way to put it is that all through human history, the most terrible and tragic events that we certainly wouldn't choose for them to have happened if we could somehow undo them, also had some significant, uh, surprising positive outcomes. And at this point, since we have failed to contain the pandemic, the best we can hope to do is to try to ensure that we maximize on those positives, for example, by getting what we can out of the mRNA vaccines, making sure that there is the research funding to maximize the possibility that we get a malaria vaccine out of it and that we are able to distribute it, because that certainly would be a huge boon to humanity. You're a wide-ranging thinker with a wide-ranging set of interests. I want to close on an interest of yours that has given me a good number of hours of pleasure over the last weeks and months, which is your blog about good ethnic food in the Washington, D.C. area. Washington, for listeners outside the city, is a really bizarre city, which has a pretty good food scene, but it's really hard to find a good Chinese or Indian restaurant within the district itself. But it has a lot of great Asian and other ethnic food in the suburbs around D.C. And Tyler keeps an amazing blog chronicling his food adventures there. What are your recommendations for how people should choose restaurants and how they should find hidden gems that they may not be aware of? They should ask me and read my dining guide. But in most parts of America, the suburbs are doing better than cities for dining. Los Angeles is a big exception to that. Even in New York City, where I am right now, you know, Queens is better than Manhattan. So I just ate at a wonderful Singaporean place at 165th and Amsterdam. Like, who gets up there? I mean, people live there, but most people stick around Midtown or Village or whatever. I just ate at a very good Indian place. Again, I forget the name, but the address was 119 Delancey in Essex Market. Fantastic stuff. Get the goat neck biryani. So think weird. Eat at the fringes. Downtowns are bad. High rent districts often are bad. And there's fantastic what you might call ethnic food in most parts of America. Food in Texas, incredible. California, probably the best state for food overall. But again, often in strange corners, places that are hard to get to. 
but most restaurants around 165th Street and Broadway are not necessarily good. So how did you identify that restaurant? If you were going to travel to Houston tomorrow, how would you go about identifying the restaurants that you're going to take a chance on? You're not going to just drive into the suburbs and drive around until you see a place that looks nice. That's exactly what I would do. But look, you could just find a Spanish speaker in Houston and ask them what they think is the best taqueria and try that place. It's better than what most people do. Internet reviews have become worse. They can be useful, but I wouldn't in general trust them. They lead you to the same old, same old. So take some chances. Get your body out there. Make believe there's no internet, right? Explore. I mean, certainly when I've traveled, I've just asked anybody I had a conversation with, where should I go? And you can tell not just by the recommendations, but by their enthusiasm for it whether it's a good recommendation. Well, thank you, Tyler, for my delicious meals at You Noodles and other places around Washington, D.C. And thank you for this great conversation and for all the work you do. My pleasure. Look forward to seeing you next. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner, for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.